With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 281. It's titled, Four Forces That Will Shape the Next Decade. This is the last episode of the year and the last episode of the decade. A time for reflection. One of the things I've been doing is reading a book called Range by David Epstein. I started the book, I put it down, and then I recently picked it up again. He mentioned how psychologist Dan Gilbert and his colleagues measured the preferences, the personalities, the values of more than 19,000 adults. Their ages ranged from 18 to 68, and they asked some of them to predict how they would change over the next decade. And then they asked others to reflect on how they had actually changed in the previous decade. What was interesting is the predictors didn't think that they would change very much over the next decade. Whereas those that reflected back were astounded by how much they had changed. That their preferences, Gilbert says, for vacations, music, hobbies, and even friends were transfigured. He writes, the precise person you are now is fleeting, just like all the other people you've been. That feels like the most unexpected result, but it's also the most well-documented. We will change in this next decade, just like we've changed in the past. I was looking back at my journal for the first post I wrote in the decade. I don't write in my journal very much. The first post wasn't until November 7th, 2010. I wrote, my profession continues to be rewarding. The economic environment is still tenuous, but the Great Recession officially ended over a year ago but its impact continues to be felt with unemployment over 10%. We navigated our clients through it all, and I have come through a much wiser investment strategist. I spend more time learning, writing, and speaking at conferences. It has been rewarding. 10% unemployment rate, December 2009. And then it was just a downward slope. Now, unemployment rate is 3.5%. So the economy... I said a decade, at least in the U.S., of expansion. No recession at all. The longest recovering history. Globally, we've not had major recessions. There was some pockets of slowdown. That was at the beginning of the decade. A year later, I quit my job. It took me a while to figure out what to do next. I launched and shut down five different investment-related websites before launching this podcast May 2014. I've done over 280 episodes this decade, so more than half the decade I've been podcasting, commenting on what's going on with the economy, the world, the financial markets. 
I ended the decade by releasing a book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, which reminds me, the audiobook is now available on Audible. And you can get that audiobook for free. I narrated it. If you're not an Audible member, you can get a 30-day free trial and you get a free book as part of your 30-day free trial. You can choose my book if you would like. You can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofusbook.com. I undertook a major career transition this past decade, moving from investment advisor to podcaster, educator, writer. Hermania Ibarra, she's a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School. She studies career paths and career transitions and has looked at many examples of that. Epstein mentioned her in his book, Range, and that she criticizes conventional wisdom articles about career planning advice, such as this one from the Wall Street Journal that says the painless path to a new career is to simply form a clear picture of what you want before acting. Know what you want, then just go for it. Not that simple. Recall in episode 268, where I quoted the economist Alison Schrager, who said, Knowing what you want might be the hardest part of risk management. It's hard to figure out what we want. Abar says we discover the possibilities by doing, by trying new activities, building new networks, finding new role models. I did a lot of that this past decade, and I suspect you have too, that you have changed. Podcasting was just an experiment. Thought I'd try it out. I liked it. I continued to do it. One of my favorite quotes of the decade, you could say, was from Richard Bookstaber in his book, The End of Theory. He says, we humans move from experience to experience. We learn, we invent, we create. We cannot already know what we will experience, what we will learn, invent, or create. It is the nature of humanity to harbor radical uncertainty. Fundamentally, we don't know where we are going, and we don't know who we will be when we get there. We essentially must live out our lives to see where they will go. There is no formula that allows us to fast forward to find out what the result will be. The world cannot be solved. It has to be lived. When we think about four forces that will shape the next decade, these are broad-based factors they will impact us financially. They will impact our families and how we live. The key to manage through them is take it day by day. Short-term planning, it is very, very difficult to make long-term plans because we change and the world changes. Before we look at these four forces, let's consider what a great decade it was to be an investor. The Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, the global investments, returned 8.9% annualized. U.S. market did 12.7% annualized. In a recent Money for the Rest of Us Plus episode, we broke that down and looked at what would have to happen for the U.S. to generate double-digit returns in the next decade. Not likely. My assumption for global stocks and on money for the rest of us plus is a 6.1% annualized return over the next decade with a range of 0.7% annualized to 9.2% annualized. 
bonds in this past decade returned 3.5% annualized. Now, if you read my book and if you listen to the show, you know the best predictor of bond returns is their current yield to maturity if your holding period is 7 to 10 years. The 10-year Treasury bond at the beginning of 2010 was yielding about 3.8%. That Vanguard fund returned 3.65% gross of fees. So, very, very close. Starting yield about 3.8%. Total return for the bond market, an index fund, was about 3.7% gross of fees. Right now, yields to maturity on the bond market in the U.S. is about 2.3%. That's a reasonable expectation over the next decade. These four forces will impact investment returns over the next decade. I've done episodes on all of them, and I will do more of them. But here they are. The first is climate change and the energy transition that is taking place in response to climate change. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, just released their annual peer-reviewed Arctic report card, showed that the Greenland ice sheet is losing nearly 667 billion metric tons of ice per year. That's contributing to sea level rise at a rate of about 0.7 millimeters per year. North America Arctic snow cover in May 2019 was the fifth lowest in 53 years of record. June snow cover was the third lowest. Thawing permafrost throughout the Arctic. Less sea ice. Higher mean sea temperatures. Climate change is happening. Now, there's still lots of debate among some the reason why. For this episode, in terms of the impact for the next decade, how will it impact us financially? I got an email from a listener that referred to a hedge fund manager, and I couldn't find the video, but the hedge fund manager did not believe in climate change and believed that if climate change existed, that it would start to be priced in to financial assets and banks and other financial entities would start taking actions in response to it. They are. In California, regulators had to ban insurance companies from refusing to renew home insurance policies in certain wildfire-prone parts of the state. Homeowners were struggling to get insurance coverage, and when they got it, they were paying a larger premium because the risks were higher for insurance companies. Taxes potentially could be higher. In the Florida Keys, the government there just did a report to calculate how high its 300 miles of road would need to be elevated to protect against rising sea levels. The cost was much higher than they would have expected. Rhonda Hogg, the county's sustainability director, said, I never would have dreamed we would say no in terms of raising the elevation of the roads. But now, with the real estimates coming in, it's a different story. And it's not all doable. They're suggesting they're going to have to just abandon some of the roads and people have to get to their houses via boat. Now, obviously, these are extremes, and on the margins, 
But that's where climate change impacts the greatest. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco issued a report a couple months ago discussing the potential financial impact of climate change on communities, particularly lower and middle class communities. There could be regulations that impact us regarding climate change and shareholder activism. Hedge fund manager Christopher Holm of TCI said that he was outlining plans to punish directors of companies that didn't disclose their carbon dioxide emissions. Climate change and how we adapt to it will certainly shape the next decade. Before we consider the other three forces, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The second force that will shape the next decade, I just labeled money. How much will there be? How will it be spent? How will it be created? What will be our definition of money? How will that money be paid back? This was captured in a recent post by Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates Hedge Fund, author of the book Principles. The post was, the world has gone mad and the system is broken. He wrote about how investors have too much money to invest, and it has pushed down returns across the board. One of the reasons interest rates are so low. He pointed out the huge government budget deficits means there'll be more bond issuance. Who will buy them? Will it lead to higher interest rates? 
You discuss pension and health care liabilities. With lower returns, it becomes more difficult to meet those huge liabilities in the future, including Social Security. What will be the role of central banks? Negative interest rates and income inequality. These are complex topics. The Economist just did a lengthy report about income inequality and how it might not be as bad as some of the studies showed. They talked about how difficult it is to measure, and they, they went into a great amount of detail with some of the challenges. Just the fact that many hide money from the IRS so or other taxing authorities making it difficult to measure the amount of income. They write, many things have indeed gone wrong with contemporary capitalism. In many countries, social mobility is falling. Too many companies enjoy excessive market power, and housing is too pricey. All of these factors and more also help explain why economic growth in the rich world is weak. Yet just as ideas about inequality have completed their march from the academy to the front lines of politics, researchers have begun to look again. And some are wondering whether inequality has in fact risen as much as claimed or by some measures at all. The hot button issue, and there certainly is some inequality, but it's not black and white. I mean, there's complexity there in terms of measurement. All of these issues surrounding money, its creation, how it's defined, how it would be spent, will certainly shape the next decade. The third force is one that I discussed last week in episode 280. It's trust, integrity, and within that, globalization, trade. We have these complex trading relationships around the world with globalization, but it's lessening. Capital Economics, the research firm, believes globalization has peaked. And they said one reason for that is that advanced manufacturing techniques means that manufacturers don't necessarily have to locate where labor costs are cheapest. They're finding it less expensive to bring the manufacturing home because it's being driven by technology. They write, globalization may just stall over the next decade, but a period of deglobalization with cross-border flows of trade and capital falling as a share of GDP is increasingly likely. If this is driven by new technology, it will not be bad for the world economy. But the trust issue, not trading because you don't trust the other entity, or distrust in the government, in brands, in corporations, in your neighbor. If we get to the point where a higher and higher percentage of the populace believes they can get ahead by taking rather than producing and making and creating, that will shape profoundly the next decade and probably the thing that I'm worried about the most. Just a lack of integrity in both people and our institutions. The fourth force that will shape the next decade is technology and how it will impact productivity. Productivity is the ability to produce more efficiently, less time, less resources. I mentioned the Capital Economics Report. They're saying manufacturing technology requires less people. It is more efficient, but 
I've done several episodes on will a robot take over your job. With AI, which I've done episodes on, these trends are accelerating, but they haven't shown up in the official productivity numbers. The economy is measured by gross domestic products, the measure of output in terms of goods and services, the monetary value of that output. And longer term, it's driven by demographics. Is the number of workers increasing? And second, how productive are those workers? And those official statistics aren't showing workers getting more productive. So a lack of productivity improvement is lowering GDP growth, economic growth. Economists don't know why. It could be a measurement problem. They're not capturing the productivity improvements. Or it could be companies just aren't implementing the improvements. But this idea of how technology will interact with productivity and will it lead to increased economic growth, which means more income, more money for households and businesses. These four forces reinforce each other. They interact in complex ways. A member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus had posted Ray Dalio's piece on the Plus member forums. And he wrote, I agree with Dalio's observations and see at a high level two possible futures. Rising interest rates due to a high supply of bonds needed to service public debt or B, debt monetization through high inflation. I'm not asking anyone to look into their crystal ball and tell me what they see. Rather, I'd like to build a mental model, which includes what lines of reasoning would lead policymakers to pick one over another. What factors outside of control of central banks may tilt the world toward one of those options? What are the reasonable adjustments to asset allocations in each case? Lastly, what is my blind spot? Am I completely missing an alternative? I think it's both. Governments are going to continue to issue huge amounts of bonds, especially when the next recession hits. And central banks are going, to, are going to continue to purchase many of those bonds. Where these forces, climate change, money, trust, technology, will have an impact is on interest rates, ultimately. These will all come together. We have very low interest rates to negative interest rates throughout the world. But if trust falls and there's too much money created, more than the ability of the private sector to absorb, to where it overruns the ability of the private sector to produce goods and services, that could lead to inflation. Just the sheer lack of trust means investors could require higher interest rates to protect them against uncertainty regarding inflation, regarding trust, trust in and actions by the central bank. Whatever happens will show up in financial returns for stocks, for bonds, and other asset classes. My mental model for approaching this is to be flexible, to invest, as I often say, on the leading edge of the present, to see how these forces develop, see if inflation is picking up, see if a lack of trust is showing up in a wider term premium that additional compensation investors require to protect against that uncertainty, and then to adapt 
and adjust. Short-term planning, not sticking to the same thing for the long term. Because we change, the world will change, and we just have to adapt to it. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Have a happy new year. And I look forward to exploring these forces and trends in 2020. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com, the links to the books and the other articles and studies I reference. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide, where I'll send you that week's links, as well as an essay I do on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I have shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not provided investment advice. I've not considered your specific risk situation. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>